0: I can get this to work. Yes, so Tomorrow Shall Be My Dancing Day, that was being sung by King's College Cambridge and uh, the lyrics to that song are out of an ancient medieval text and it's all often sung as a Christmas carol uh, but Tomorrow Shall Be My Dancing Day the person singing is Jesus oh. tomorrow shall be my dancing day I'm going to come and dance on the earth this have I done for my true love, oh, I love it. we are the true love it is, it is amazing so I'm just going to say right up front you need to read these last two chapters of this book slowly and with wonder because it's amazing. I probably am going to cry, but it is, it's just, they're so good. We probably also are going to struggle to get finished, but we'll see how that goes. Um, so let me start us with a word of prayer, and we will dive in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the wonder of your love for us, that you did decide to come and dance on this earth, Lord, because we were your beloved, and that you wanted to draw us into the dance. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to you this night, um, that you would open this book to us, and that through it, we would be drawn closer to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So I'm going to run through the preliminaries pretty quickly, um, but I do want us to just remember again this verse and this focus on what is true and beautiful and good and the idea of setting our minds. Because that undergirds everything that's going on in the story, and it undergirds why the story was ever even written in the first place. So let's say that together. Finally, brothers, brothers, whatever whatever is true, whatever is is honorable, whatever 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 is just, whatever whatever is pure, whatever 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 is lovely, whatever whatever is commendable, if if there is any excellence, if if there is anything anything worthy of praise, think about these things. things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Again, just an amazing verse. Um, I'm going to skip, 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 skip. Well, I guess I'll back up to that one. But uh, one of the things that we talked about uh, for the past couple of weeks is how this enchantment that the Lady of the Green Kirtle, or the Green Witch, or the Snake, or the Evil Queen, or whatever you want to call her, her enchantment, although it looked lovely in some ways, and she looked lovely, her enchantment led to slavery. And that when you are in the slavery, you don't even realize that you are enchanted. And again, this is one of the reasons this is so very applicable to our culture Uh, That when you are in enchantment, when you've been seduced uh, by the false gods, you don't often realize it. Uh, Another thing, what is truly reality? Is reality the spiritual world, the world, the kingdom of heaven? Or is reality only what is presented to your senses on this earth? Is it an eternal reality Or going back to when I was picking on poor Henry Fishburne, uh, when we would say in this nihilistic, atheistic, materialistic Mm -hmm. worldview that all you are is a random collection of atoms that could have randomly been Henry Fishburne or randomly been a rock or randomly been a cockroach. None of it makes any difference. And none of it lasts. None of it matters. Very, very, very different worldviews. Uh, pain can clarify truth. Puddleglom bravely, courageously sticks his foot in the fire to break the witch's enchantment, and the smell of burning marsh wiggle um, has a wonderfully salutary effect uh, in helping them understand that they are in serious trouble. And then at the end of that scene, Remember, as soon as the witch, the lady of the green curdle, the snake, whatever you want to call her, as soon as she realizes that her attempts at seduction are fruitless, she immediately transforms and tries to kill them immediately. It's no, she doesn't want to compromise or you know, figure out a plan mm-hmm. to be able to move forward together. Um, she just wants to destroy them. And as we said, this is what scripture teaches. Satan is the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And this great speech that I love, so I'm going to recite it for you again, Um, this is Puddleglum's great wisdom to the witch. And one thing we can learn here, remember, the witch, he knows, is an evil enchantress who wishes them at the least significant harm and probably death, he has figured that out, but look how polite he is. There's something that we could learn from that. One word, ma'am, Puddleglum said, coming back from the fire limping because of the pain. One word. All you've been saying is quite right, I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always like to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. So I won't deny any of what you've said. But there's one thing more to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have, then all I can say is that in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose that black pit of the kingdom of yours is the only world. What strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan deleted. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. So thanking you kindly for our supper, if these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. And this is a, it's a great and courageous speech um, that is, is loaded with philosophy that we've already talked about, so I'm just going to skip right ahead. Um, we talked last week about some of the remarkable things in chapter 13 and 14, one of which is just the glorious imagery. Lewis's creative writing about bism and uh, the salamanders of fire, which I haven't found out anything about, but I'm still going to check.
1: Um,
0: I know in the Greek it means fire lizard, but beyond that. Um, but the, the creative <coughs> writing is just remarkable. But he does a brilliant job in these chapters of showing how evil wants to destroy everything it doesn't want to just do its bit and then disappear if it's going to go down it wants to take everything and everyone with it the second thing is when you're following aslan he will sometimes assure you of his presence in miraculous ways and there's that beautiful sign where the prince doesn't want to put on the enchanted armor but he goes back for the black shield to uh, protect himself as they get ready to go out. And the shield is transformed magically into burnished silver with Aslan in the middle of the shield, a great reassurance they're right in the center of where Aslan wants them to be. And then the focus on Aslan leads to repentance and true identity. As they witness this miracle, they are moved to worship. They kneel down, they kiss his likeness they confess their sins to one another, and basically pray. Um, And for the first time, Jill and Eustace use their Christian names, their first names, Mm -hmm. to address each other. It's all packed with New Testament imagery just in a few sentences. And then at the end, freedom from slavery leads to speech, joy, and desire for one's homeland. When the creatures of the underworld who have been silent, herding around in herds like cockroaches, uh, when they get freed because the witch's spell is broken, all of the sudden their speech comes back. They're able to talk, they experience joy, they're setting off fireworks, and they're so excited to go back um, into the fiery underworld that they came from, that they love. So once that slavery, That enchantment is very much like somebody that gets free of an addiction. That all of a sudden, that drab, colorless existence that they were leading changes into technicolor. And it is a beautiful thing to behold. And then, this is what's gonna be tricky. We've got six themes to get through, so we'll see see how we do. Uh, But the first one is that joy and order are hardwired into Narnia and this is an important thing because we live in a culture where a lot of people think that chaos is sort of the natural condition but when you study natural revelation uh, you see that there is order everywhere in the creation order in the universe and Lewis has built order into Narnia, and that's something for us to learn from, but there also is joy that is hardwired into it. We're going to come back to that. The second thing is that when you are in the will of Aslan, that confers goodness and authority upon you. The third thing is that evil never sleeps, and it has its own strategy for every age. Fourthly, Aslan is with us in our deepest sorrows and will bring us home. Fifth one, Aslan's blood gives us resurrection life. And then lastly, Aslan cares about injustice and the wrongs we suffer. Aslan, of course, being more and more and more clearly um, a figure for Jesus Christ. So we're going to jump into that. Um, This first part is going to be a little long, and if you want to blame someone, you can blame Ken Hagerty, uh, because as I was thinking about this and working on it, I was remembering that there's a scene with apples in something that C.S. Lewis wrote that reminded me of this great snow dance, and there's also another scene with apples in The Magician's Nephew, and I knew where that was, but I couldn't think where the other was, and Ken randomly sent me this email with the quotation of exactly what I was looking for and a reminder that it all seemed to relate to uh, Zephaniah 3.17, uh, which is that wonderful verse about um, God. Uh, one of the translations says, he will joy over you with singing. Uh, it's just a, it's a beautiful, beautiful verse. So we're going to unpack uh, a little bit of this so jill uh they've been digging and digging and they finally get to a place where they see some light coming in it's that shadowy moonlight and remember in the scheme of the planets um the silver chair uh is the story that represents the moon in the medieval cosmology so they have this moonlight jill is the first one to manage to get her head out and when she gets her head out um, she's immediately smacked in the mouth by accident with a snowball. So they can't really hear her, and she has gone out, and she's in this wondrous scene where, meanwhile, Eustace and Puddleglum and Rillion are still in the dark. Jill's disappeared. All they hear is, and so they think something terrible has happened to her. So they are gathering their wits and their weapons to come charging out of the hole if they can figure out how to get up there. And meanwhile, Jill is having this ecstatic experience of joy and beauty and wonder, because when she comes out, this is what happens. Jill turned almost at once to shout down to the others, I say, it's all right, we're out and we're home. But the reason she never got further than I say was this, circling round and round the dancers was a ring of dwarfs, Mm -hmm. all dressed in their finest clothes, mostly scarlet with fur-lined hoods and golden tassels and big furry top boots. As they circled around, they were all diligently throwing snowballs. These were the white things that Jill had seen flying through the air. They weren't throwing them at the dancers as silly boys might've been doing in England. They were throwing them through the dance in such perfect time with the music and with such perfect aim that if all the dancers were in exactly the right places at exactly the right moments, no one would be hit. This is called the Great Snow Dance, and it is done every year in Narnia on the first moonlit night when there is snow on the ground. Of course, it is kind of a game as well as a dance, because every now and then some dancer will be the least little bit wrong and get a snowball in the face, and then everyone laughs. But a good team of dancers, dwarfs, and musicians will keep it up for hours without a single hit. On fine nights when the cold and the drum taps and the hooting of the owls and the moonlight have got into their wild woodland blood and made it even wilder, they will dance till daybreak. I wish you could see it for yourselves. And it's such a wonderful scene to kind of imagine, a scene where there's this exuberant joy that's going on in this dance and this enthusiasm and the beauty of the snow and the wood and the moonlight. And yet there's order and precision, and it's moving in this well thought through sequence that can go on for hours and hours and hours. And remember, Lewis is at heart a medievalist. He would refer to himself over and over again as a dinosaur um, who had fully embraced the medieval worldview. And think about all of those medieval dances that you've seen in period dramas. Um, We don't see dance used as a spiritual metaphor very much these days because those of us who are post-60s children, um, dancing is not like it used to be. Um, Now it is more of a mode of self-expression and do your own thing. But up until the 1960s, Um, Even with dancing that was really joyous, there was a lot of order to it. I mean, even if you watch something like Jitterbug, which is a very frenzied dance, there's a lot of order to that. It's not just somebody standing around shaking their booty. So um, (laughs) this whole idea of dance as joy and order and beauty is something that's deeply part of human culture, but that we've lost. And it's something that the church used to talk about. Medieval writers and theologians talk about, the dance of um, the dance of God, the dance of the spirit, uh, our being involved in a dance. One of the images that's used for the Trinity is a kind of dance that goes on and on forever, this dance of love that is going on among the three of them. And so Lewis is tying all of that into this little scene, and it, is, it speaks volumes about Aslan's creation and about what he's trying to accomplish. So it's a beautiful passage, and one that's really fun to uh, just close your eyes and imagine what that would look like. But then there's this passage from The Problem of Pain, a very different book, talking about the golden apple of selfhood. Now, of course, he's referring back to the apple in the Garden of Eden, Um, that apple that's the apple that would lead to the knowledge of good and evil that would enable us to be like God. And here he says, The golden apple of selfhood thrown among the false gods became an apple of discord because they scrambled for it. They did not know the first rule of the holy game, which is that every player must by all means touch the ball and then immediately pass it on. To be found with it in your hands is a fault, to cling to it death. But when it flies to and fro among the players too swift for eye to follow, and the great master himself leads the revelry, giving himself eternally to his creatures in the generation and back to himself and the sacrifice of the word, then indeed the eternal dance makes heaven drowsy with the harmony. All pains and pleasures we have known are earth, on earth are early initiations in the movements of that dance, but the dance itself is strictly incomparable with the sufferings of this present time. As we draw nearer to its uncreated rhythm, pain and pleasure sink almost out of sight. There is joy in the dance, but it does not exist for the sake of joy. It does not even exist for the sake of good or of love. It is love himself and good himself and therefore happy. It does not exist for us, but we for it. I could spend the rest of the night talking about that, um, but I'm not going to. Uh, But it is a beautiful description of this idea that Lewis unpacks that's deeply rooted in the scriptures about how selfishness and pride Are death and that unselfishness and giving away is where joy is found and this dance that he describes so beautifully here with this golden apple is so similar to what you see in the snow dance in Narnia and it's why there's joy in that dance and it's a type or a shadow of the real dance that's happening in Aslan's country or in heaven but as if that were not enough there's this other amazing passage about the golden apple and what happens if you hoard it for yourself versus giving it away um, under Aslan's control. So, in The Magician's Nephew, um, sort of the prequel uh, to the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a little boy named Diggory. And Diggory is drawn into Narnia through some magic rings that his uncle, who's a sort of evil magician, sort of a sham guy, um, has, and he uses the children to experiment on, It was pretty awful. Um, but Dickory finds himself in Narnia just as Aslan is creating it. And Aslan is singing the stars into form and singing the trees and the oceans as beautiful. But as that is going on, um, the witch, the white witch who is in Narnia and the one, the witch of the wardrobe, um, is drawn in because Uncle Andrew, the not very good mag- magician has summoned her. So she comes in and she sort of spoils the creation by bringing evil into it. But in the creation, far away on a mountain, there's a beautiful walled garden. And in the center of the garden are two trees Does this sound familiar? Um, And on one of those trees, the tree of life, oh, um, (laughs) is the golden apple that will bring all healing and all goodness uh, and eternal life to whoever eats it. And Diggory is a very sad little boy because his mother is dying and there's no hope for her and the doctors have said she's going to die. Now, remember Lewis and his own mother at that age of eight, his mother given the diagnosis that she's going to die. And when he hears about this apple, he thinks, if I can get that apple and take it back, I can save my mother's life. But then he learns from Aslan that no one is to take that apple and that the only person to whom that apple can be given is Aslan himself. So that's kind of the the background. So here we go. Um, He goes to the garden, and while he's there, he's supposed to be getting the apple to take it to Aslan. And as soon as he gets there, guess who shows up? The witch. I know what errand you have come on, continued the witch, for it was I who was close beside you in the woods last night and heard all your counsels. You have plucked fruit in the garden yonder. You have it in your pocket now, and you're going to carry it back untasted to the lion for him to eat, for him to use. You simpleton, don't you know that what that fruit is? I will tell you, it is the apple of youth, the apple of life. I know, for I have tasted it, and I feel already such changes in myself that I know I shall never grow old or die. Eat it, boy, eat it. "'and you and I will both live forever "'and be king and queen of this whole world "'or of your world if we decide to go back there.' "'No, thanks,' said Diggory. "'I don't know that I care much "'about living on and on after everyone. "'I know it's... "'After everyone everyone I know is dead. "'I'd rather live an ordinary time "'and die and go to heaven. "'But what about this mother of yours "'whom you pretend to love so? "'What's she got to do with it?' said Diggory. Do you not see, fool, that one bite of that apple would heal her? You have it in your pocket. We are here by ourselves, and the lion is far away. Use your magic and go back to your own world. A minute later, you can be at your mother's bedside, giving her the fruit. Five minutes later, you will see the color coming back to her face. She will tell you the pain is gone. Soon she will tell you she feels stronger. Then she will fall asleep. Think of that, hours of sweet natural sleep without pain, without drugs. Next day, everyone will be saying how wonderfully she's recovered. Soon she will be quite well again. All will be well again. Your home will be happy again. You will be like other boys. Oh, gasped Diggory, as if he had been hurt and put his hand to his head, for he now knew that the most terrible choice lay before him. What has the lion ever done for you, that you should be his slave, said the witch? What can he do to you once you're back in your own world? And what would your mother think if she knew that you could have taken her pain away and given her back her life and saved your father's heart from being broken and that you wouldn't, that you'd rather run messages for a wild animal in a strange world that is no business of yours? Pretty... Tough, and so Diggory gets away from her and goes back to Aslan, but his heart is broken and heavy. It's just oh awful.
1: Evil comes up from all. She's attacking him from different uh, viewpoints and different. Yes, angles. every well, every uh, lever she can push. Yeah, which yep. one is going to get him to do what she wants? That's him to exactly do. right. So it's, it's, yeah this is this is an ancient concept it's the faustian bar
0: yes that's exactly right
1: yep 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 you know it's it's the it's the lore yep which we all fall for right if only you do this if only you vote
0: for this right then (laughs) yep (laughs) yep that's exactly right so i'm leaving out some more um but then uh he gets back to Aslan, and this is what happens. So Aslan says, and the witch tempted you to do another thing, my son, did she not? Yes, Aslan, she wanted me to take an apple home to mother. Mm-hmm. Understand, then, that it would have healed her, but not to your joy or hers. The day would have come when both you and she would have looked back and said, it would have been better to die in that illness. And Diggory could say nothing, for tears choked him and he gave up all hopes of saving his mother's life. But at the same time, he knew that the lion knew what would have happened and that there might be things more terrible even than losing someone you love by death. But now Aslan was speaking again, almost in a whisper. That is what would have happened, child, with a stolen apple. It is not what will happen now. What I give you now will bring joy. It will not in your world give endless life, but it will heal. Go, pluck her an apple from the tree. For a second, Dickory could hardly understand. It was as if the whole world had turned inside out and upside down. And then like someone in a dream, he was walking across to the tree, and the king and queen were cheering him, and all the creatures were cheering too. He plucked the apple and put it in his pocket. Then he came back to Aslan. Please, he said, may we go home now. He had forgotten to say thank you, but he meant it. And Aslan understood. But it's such an incredibly powerful illustration of how when we try to do things in our own strength, in our own way, contrary, think God is out to get us and we've got to take it ourselves, that we are doomed to failure but that when we give everything that we have back to God, he gives it back to us in this way that is so full of grace that we can't even begin to imagine it. And I would encourage you, if you've got the magician's nephew, go read that passage. But these three passages are all linked together in this beautiful way, and it's that whole idea of you don't hold on, you hold loosely to things, and particularly to um, selfhood. And you want to be continually giving back giving to god giving to others and that in that there's order and there's joy and there's a whole book to be written about that but you probably uh, wouldn't
1: have appreciated it either if if aslan hadn't said no okay wait okay now go right because then he would have he had this this letdown of like oh it's not going to happen and he but then when as gave it back to him, he realized he's not going to
2: have to
0: go through that. So. Right. Yeah, that makes it transformational. Right. Yeah, in a way it wouldn't have been. Yes.
2: It also echoes one of the fundamental Greek myths about the one about the origin of the Trojan War, where the witch comes and throws a golden apple mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. engraved mm-hmm. for the fairest mm-hmm. onto yep. the table mm-hmm. and gets all of the all of the goddesses all... scrambling for it. And then they decide that they'll take a shepherd over there and let him decide who who gets it, and then for, in return for that he'll get the, the the most beautiful woman in the world. Just happens to be the queen of Troy. And she's already married, but he gets her anyway. And so the war, yep. the war, the Trojan
0: War begins. Which is exactly the same scene as the Council of Elrond in The Lord of the Rings, when the One Ring is there and they all start fighting for it, and then the least likely the little hobbit, like the shepherd, is the one who... Paris. So we we can go on and on and on. Um, all right, so second second theme, being in the well of Aslan confers goodness and authority. So here we are back to where they're coming out of the underworld. As Puddleglom appeared, uh, shouts broke out on every side. Why, it's a wiggle. Why, it's old Puddleglom, old Puddleglum from the eastern marshes. Whatever have you been doing, Puddleglom? There have been search parties out for you. The Lord <coughs> Trumkin has been putting up notices. There's a reward offered. But all this died away, all in one moment, into dead silence, as quickly as the noise dies away in a rowdy dormitory if the headmaster opens the door. For now they saw the prince. No one doubted for a moment who he was. There were plenty of beasts and dryads and dwarfs and fauns who remembered him from the days before his enchanting. There were some old ones who could just remember how his father King Caspian had looked when he was a young man and saw the likeness, but I think they would have known him anyway. Pale though he was from long imprisonment in the deep lands, dressed in black, dusty, disheveled, and weary. There was something in his face and air which no one could mistake. That look is in the face of all true kings of Narnia who rule by the will of Aslan and sit at Ker Paravel on the throne of Peter the High King. Instantly, every head was bared and every knee was bent. A moment later, such cheering and shouting with jumps and reels of joy, such handshakings and kissings and embracings of everybody by everybody else broke out that the tears came into Joel's eyes. Their quest had been worth all the pains it cost. And part of what you see here, and Lewis expands on this in some of the other books, is that the, the kings and queens of Narnia are truly the kings and queens because they are in the will of Aslan. And when they step outside of that, they are not the true king, or true queen anymore. This whole nobility of purpose and character and mission and will with a capital W is all connected to their relationship with Aslan. And it's something that changes them visibly, Mm. that you, you notice it, it marks them because they belong to a different kingdom. They belong to Narnia, but their true home is Aslan's country. And there's a lot more we could unpack about that, but we're not going to. Um, So evil never sleeps and has its own unique strategy for every age. Uh, A little bit later, the two children were nearly dropping with tiredness and hunger, but the warmth of the cave and the very sight of it with the firelight dancing on the walls and dressers and cups and saucers and plates and on the smooth stone floor, just as it does in a farmhouse kitchen, revived them a little. All the same, they were fast asleep while supper was being got ready. And while they slept, Prince Rillian was talking over the whole adventure with the older and wiser beast and dwarfs. And now they all saw what it meant, how a wicked witch, doubtless of the same kind as that white witch who had brought the great winner on Narnia long ago, had contrived the whole idea, first killing Rillian's mother and enchanting Rillian himself. And they saw how she had dug right under Narnia and was going to break out and rule it through Rillian, and how he had never dreamed that the country of which she would make him king, king in name, but really her slave, was his own country. And from the children's part of the story, they saw how she was in league and friendship with the dangerous giants of Harfang. And the lesson of it all is, your highness, said the oldest dwarf, that those northern witches always mean the same thing. But in every age, they have a different plan for getting it. And it's just another example of how Lewis, all through these Narnia stories, evil is always cropping up. And whenever it crops up, it's got a different face, and it's got a different strategy, and it's got different people that it's going after, and it's got a different trendy thing happening with it. But it's all the same evil. And notice that this, again, is um, so similar to when you think about Jesus's temptations from Satan, um, the whole idea that Satan will give Jesus the kingdoms of the world if he will bow down and worship him. Well, of course, if Jesus stays true to his calling, the kingdoms of the world, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But what Satan wants to do is to give a cheap, substitute for that where he's in charge and that's just exactly what Lewis portrays here with the witch that she wants to set up Rillian as the king of Narnia but he's not really the king he's got a lot of the outward accoutrements but she is calling the shots so it's very much that same theme so these biblical themes are playing out all over the place in the way that he winds this down and then four, Aslan is with us in our deepest sorrows and will bring us home. This is a beautiful passage. And we don't have time to read all of it, but the the part just before this, um, they get word when they wake up in the morning from Glenfeather, the scary, I think, scary three-foot-tall talking owl, um, tells them that Rillian has been summoned back because Aslan appeared to his father on... The ship, and the ship is turned around to bring King Caspian back. Um, The Caspian, very old and frail, and they want to have this reunion. And so Rillian has gone early. The children get up, and they have the amazing privilege of riding on the back of centaurs um, to go back to be with Rillian. And so as they ride up, they can see the scene unfolding. The ship has just gotten there. The trumpets are blowing and everything. And Caspian um, is on the ship, but he's on a stretcher, and he's clearly at, toward the end of his life. And Rilian runs up and throws his arm around him and embraces him. And just as that happens, Caspian raises his hand to bless his son and to make him the king of Narnia, and <coughs> in that moment, dies. And so the triumph and joy turns to devastation and tragedy and weeping. So that's where we pick this up. There were whisperings and goings to and fro. Then Jill noticed that all who wore hats, bonnets, helmets, or hoods were taking them off, Eustace included. Then she heard a rustling and flapping noise up above the castle. And when she looked up, she saw the great banner with the golden lion on it was being brought down to half-mast. And after that, Slowly, mercilessly, with wailing strings and disconsolate blowing of horns, the music began again, this time a tune to break your heart. They both slipped off their centaurs who took no notice of them. I wish I was at home, said Jill. Eustace nodded, saying nothing, and bit his lip. I have come, said a deep voice behind them. They turned and saw the lion himself so bright and real and strong that everything else began at once to look pale and shadowy compared with him and in less time than it takes to breathe Jill forgot about the dead king of narnia and remembered only how she had made eustace fall over the cliff and how she had helped to muff nearly all the signs and about the snappings and quarrelings and she wanted to say i'm sorry but she could not speak Then the lion drew them toward him with his eyes and bent down and touched their pale faces with his tongue and said, think of that no more. I will not always be scolding. You have done the work for which I sent you into Narnia. Please, Aslan, may we go home now? Yes, I have come to bring you home, said Aslan. Then he opened his (coughs) mouth wide and blew but this time they had no sense of flying through the air. Instead, it seemed that they remained still, and the wild breath of Aslan blew away the ship and the dead king and the castle and the snow and the winter sky, for all these things floated off into the air like wreaths of smoke, and suddenly they were standing in a great brightness of midsummer sunshine on smooth turf among mighty trees and beside a fair fresh stream. Then they saw that they were once more on the mountain of Aslan, high up above and beyond the end of that world in which Narnia lies. But the strange thing was that the funeral music for King Caspian still went on, though no one can tell them where it came from. They were walking beside the stream, and the lion went before them, and he became so beautiful, and the music so despairing, that Jill did not know which of them it was that filled her eyes with tears. So it's a very moving, beautiful passage of this deep, deep sorrow that's all the more poignant for having been great joy right before and how right into the middle of that walks Aslan with his physical presence with them to be with them as they experience the sadness and pain, and then to take them home. So, and as they are on their way home, they have this stop in Aslan's country where something really remarkable is going to happen. Um, But notice this stream, it's the same stream, the stream where she was afraid, and now she's walking by the stream with the lion at her side, it's just awesome. So this part, Aslan's blood, gives us resurrection life. We'll see if I can get through <clears> this part. Um, then Aslan stopped, and the children looked into the stream. And there, on the golden gravel of the bed of the stream, lay King Caspian, dead, with the water flowing over him like liquid glass. His long white beard swayed in it like waterweed, and the three stood and wept. Even the lion wept, great lion tears, each tear more precious than the earth would be if it was a single solid diamond. And Jill noticed that Eustace looked neither like a child crying nor like a boy crying and wanting to hide it, but like a grown-up crying. At least that is the nearest she could get to it. But really, as she said, people don't seem to have any particular ages on that mountain. Son of Adam, said Aslan, go into that thicket "'and pluck the thorn that you will find there "'and bring it to me.' "'Eustace obeyed. "'The thorn was a foot long and sharp as a rapier. "'Drive it into my paw, son of Adam,' said Aslan, "'holding up his right forepaw "'and spreading out the great pad toward Eustace. "'Must I?' said Eustace. "'Yes,' said Aslan. "'Then Eustace set his teeth "'and drove the thorn into the lion's pad, "'and there came out a great drop of blood, redder than all redness that you've ever seen or imagined. And it splashed into the stream over the dead body of the king. At the same moment, the doleful music stopped and the dead king began to be changed. His white beard turned to gray and from gray to yellow and got shorter and vanished altogether. And his sunken cheeks grew round and fresh and the wrinkles were smoothed, and his eyes opened, and his eyes and lips both laughed. And suddenly he leaped up and stood before them, a very young man or a boy. But Jill couldn't say which because of people having no particular ages in Aslan's country. Even in this world, of course, it is the stupidest children who are most childish and the stupidest grown-ups who are most grown-up. And he rushed to Aslan and flung his arms as far as they would go around the huge neck, and he gave Aslan the strong kisses of a king, and Aslan gave him the wild kisses of a lion. At last, Caspian turned to the others. He gave a great laugh of astonished joy. Why, Eustace, he said, Eustace, so you did reach the end of the world after all. What about my second best sword that you broke on the sea serpent? Eustace made a step toward him with both hands held out, but then drew back with a somewhat startled expression. Look here, I say, he stammered. It's all very well, but aren't you... I mean, didn't you? Oh, don't be such an ass, said Caspian. But, said Eustace, looking at Aslan, hasn't he or, uh, died? Yes, said the lion in a very quiet voice. Almost, Jill thought, as if he were laughing. He has died. Most people have, you know. Even I have. There are very few who haven't. Oh, said Caspian, I see what's bothering you. You think I'm a ghost or some nonsense. But don't you see? "'I would be that if I appeared in Narnia now "'because I don't belong there anymore. "'But one can't be a ghost in one's own country. "'I might be a ghost if I got into your world, I don't know. "'But I suppose it isn't yours either now you're here.' "'A great hope rose in the children's hearts, "'but Aslan shook his shaggy head. "'No, my dears,' he said. "'When you meet me here again, you will have come to stay. "'But not now. You must go back to your own world.' So this is a beautiful, beautiful recounting of the power of the resurrection of the um, scriptural theology about the resurrection body. I mean, it's really incredible how much is packed into just a couple of paragraphs. And this is where I think I might have mentioned this before, when I was... Um, hearing a sermon in Oxford a couple of years ago from somebody that had a bunch of degrees. He was preaching on Revelation 21, the new heaven and new earth, and he was quoting all these theologians, and he said, but really, the person that distills what the scriptures say about this the best is C.S. Lewis and the passage about Caspian and then in the last battle. And he says, it is all absolutely what scripture teaches, but it is written and described in such a way that we can get our heads around it. Yeah.
1: Yes. So, yeah, I missed a couple of classes, and so I've probably lost the theme here, certainly. If Aslan is the analogy for Jesus, I've lost quite who Caspian is.
0: Yes, Caspian is the rightful king of Narnia, um, so he's not um, an analogy for Jesus, but he is the, the high king in the same way that way back in the line, the witch of the wardrobe, Peter and Lucy and Edmund and Susan are the Kings. So they are um, ruling in Aslan's stead over the country, but they are not um, divine, as he's it were. I wonder if Caspian ruling? is resurrected then.
1: Caspian, Aslan is still Jesus, so Caspian is almost like a Davidic king?
0: Um, yeah, yeah, but he's resurrected in the same way that Christians are resurrected in heaven. Yeah, yeah. Pilgrims
2: passing through this world, we are made for heaven. Yes,
0: yes, that's exactly right. What about your tree country?
1: Like, really, is like sort of like disciple, right? Like, in heaven, you have Jesus, you have the Trinity, and then there are some like. The elders think. on the throne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's, that's sort of what it's like. That's what I... Right, like, yeah. Um, the two guys that... Well, I think they're guys that come back in Revelation... Witnesses. Yes, that, ta- that speak at the end when there's nobody on earth that believes in Jesus, etc. Right, it, right. They're, they're sort of... I think he's sort of being compared to them.
0: Yeah, that could well be. I don't want to push the allegory yeah, too no, no, far. No the <laughs> most important part is that Aslan, the blood that hits the clear water, brings resurrection. And it's just beautifully described. But the interesting thing is that that would have been a great place to end the book right there. That would have been a great place to end the book. Everything is set right in the spiritual realm. Um, It's all good. But it's so interesting because he doesn't end the book there. And look what he does. He ends the book by going back to Experiment House and remember all of the craziness that was going on with the bullying and the meanness and all of that. And look what happens here. So they they bust in. Aslan says, I'm going to come too. I'm going to go back to Experiment House. I'm going to face toward Narnia, but my back will be visible to them. And Rillian comes in with his armor and Jill and Eustace with their Narnian clothing and they crash back into Experiment House through the same wall that they went through. At that same moment, Jill saw figures whom she knew only too well running up through the laurels toward them. Most of the gang were there, Adela Pennyfeather and Chumley Major, Edith Winterblatt, Spotty Sorner, Big Bannister, and the two loathsome Garrett twins. But suddenly they stopped, their faces changed, and all the meanness, conceit, cruelty, and sneakishness almost disappeared in one single expression of terror. For they saw the wall fallen down, and a lion as large as a young elephant lying in the gap and three figures in glittering clothes with weapons in their hands rushing down upon them. For with the strength of Aslan in them, Jell plied her crop on the girls, and Caspian and Eustace plied the flats of their swords on the boys so well that in two minutes all the bullies were running like mad, crying (laughs) out, murder, fascist, lions, it isn't fair, And then the head, who was, by the way, a woman, came running out to see what was happening. And when she saw the lion and the broken wall and Caspian and and Eustace, whom she quite failed to recognize, she had hysterics and went back to the house and began ringing up the police with stories about a lion escaped from a circus and escaped convicts who broke down walls and carried drawn swords. In the midst of all this fuss, Jill and Eustace slipped quietly indoors and changed out of their bright clothes into ordinary things, and Caspian went back into his own world, and the wall at Aswin's word was made whole again. When the police arrived and found no lion, no broken wall, and no convicts, and the head behaving like a lunatic, there was an inquiry into the whole thing. And in the inquiry, all sorts of things about Experiment House came out, And about ten people got expelled. After that, the head's friends saw that the head was no use as a head, so they got her made an inspector to interfere with other heads. (laughs) And when they found she wasn't much good even at that, they got her into Parliament, where she lived happily ever after. You
1: just couldn't resist.
0: Oh, that's so great. But one of the things I love about that is, you know, he could have left it with just the spiritual world, but he shows Aslan's concern for the everyday struggles that the children are having in their own world. And that is amazing. And again, there's all sorts of theology packed into that. So that gets us... Yes?
2: There, there's, a, there's a perfect... Echoing of this in the ring cycle, the movie ends with the fall of with the fall of of but in the book, there's one more chapter. Right. And Wormtongue has gone back to to the Shire. shire Yeah, that's exactly right. And now that they now that the the victory the cosmic victory is won, they have to go go home and invoke it in order to take old, go back to their own
0: hometown. And set things right. Just yep. like us. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, not an accident that there's some similarities yes. there. So that brings us to the end. Um, a couple of recommendations. Go back and reread this book. This book is so rich, and I know it's hard to believe because we've been doing this for nine weeks or however long it is we have only scratched the surface Uh, there's so much to think about in this book the second thing is this is a great book now that you've been through it to suggest to a friend that you might want to read it together and what I would do with that is read it and say let's read a chapter or maybe two chapters underline your favorite two passages and the chapter And then let's meet for coffee and talk about those. Um, That's a great thing to do with someone who's not a believing friend. Um, It's a great conversation opener. Another thing you can do is to give this book to someone um, and tell them a little bit about why you liked it. Uh, It's much uh, less threatening than giving somebody a Bible, for example. Um, But the other thing that you can do is now that the classes are on podcast, um, it's really easy for people. Or in other places to listen to them. So if you want to spread the wealth a little bit from this and see what happens, um, sharing the podcast site with people can be a great way to do that. Um, so just so you know what's coming next, um, we're going to go back to the Inklings next week, and we're going to follow the Inklings and try. We're going to try really hard to get the Inklings through the 1950s, which is sort of the end of their glory days uh, before we stop for the summer. So um, that's what's gonna be happening for the next few weeks. Uh, thank you for hanging in here with the silver chair. Um, if you've had even half as much fun as I've had with it, um, it has been well worth it. So let me close this with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this just amazing book. And we thank you for all of the truth of the scriptures and of the things of your kingdom Um, that are portrayed in the story. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be able to absorb those things that are needful, where our hearts need to be encouraged to live more as citizens of that kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would guide us, and that you would use us as salt and light, that you would help us to set our minds on the things that are above, that we might make a difference in this world. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Where's the
1: podcast?